Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Ruth Carden and Dr. Rebecca Boyd, who are here to tell us about the really exciting new research project focused on two of my favourite things, Vikings and dogs. Amplify Archaeology Podcast is sponsored by TUA, the ultimate resource for people who are looking to develop a little bit more of a deeper connection with Ireland. So, as well as our online courses and series of talks and events, we also have articles and itineraries full of inspiration for places for great days out. If you're looking to go to the Inishorn Peninsula, or if you wanted to go across to Inishmore, or you want to see something like the Rock of Cashel, we have itineraries full of hidden gems and secret sites that are a little bit off the usual tourist trail. So you can really get to grips with an area rather than just coming to see one particular place. It helps to turn a day trip into a bit more of an epic adventure. You can find all of those resources on our website at tour.ie. But for now, I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello and welcome to this episode of Amplify Archaeology and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Rebecca Boyd and Dr Ruth Carden and we're going to be talking about two things that I'm particularly interested in, Vikings and dogs and the relationship between the two and dogs through kind of history, uh, wolves, all the good stuff really is coming up today but we might start with yourself Ruth, dogs they're obviously a huge part of life today and you know as well as being pets and great companions they also have a number of roles for us even today don't they whether it's in farming or as guard dogs um and so on do you think you could give us a little bit of an overview about how that relationship between humans and dogs has changed throughout irish history in particular and you know, are we following a similar sort of a path in terms of um, how we integrate dogs into our lives? No, that sounds very technical, but you know what I mean. How we our relationship with dogs has it changed that much over the past few thousand years? Um, well, I suppose you have to kind of go back to the beginning. You know, the the the, the domestication of dogs, so to speak, is roughly about fifteen thousand years ago. Um, and they're descended from wolves twice. There's a dual ancestry there, uh, both Eastern Eurasian and Western Eurasian. But um, in terms of Ireland, um, the first dogs we, well, the earliest dogs we that I have dated um, in collaboration with other people are Neolithic and Bronze Age from Calora Cave in County Limerick. And that was with the late Peter Woodman, Professor Peter Woodman of Cork, UCC. And... Um, you know, there's a special relationship going on there with Calora's work and research in progress, but um, they partially and wholly burnt some of the dogs um, and buried them in front of the entrances of the, the cave in the dirt. And so some kind of ritualistic de- deposition there going on. But, you know, you have to think back, you know, dogs were, wolves were domesticated for a reason, basically. Um, and great companionship with humans, but also they have various roles in the human society. And this is propagated through time in terms of 
either guard dogs, you know, during the Neolithic, you would have had wolves, uh, bears, and so on. Um, so, you know, large carnivores that, you know, the Neolithic agricultural domestic stock would have had to be protected from, as well as from other humans, I would expect as well. Mm. Um, so through time, you, you have this relationship going on between humans and dogs and their companionships, and they come in various sizes. And, you know, in the, you know since the 1800s, you have dog breeds kind of being developed over time more and more so, and you have lap dogs and dogs that sit, you know, guard your front garden from other dogs or from other humans and from squirrels and whatever else. But um, it is a long-term association and something that we like to know more about because of, you know, we have our dogs beside ourselves in the houses or outside the houses if they have different roles and different functions. But, um, you know, there is, there is that long-term deep history that's there. And um, it just seems to have propagated through time. So it's it's a link to our ancestors as well as, you know, with modern society and so on. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think I've seen the meme a couple of times and it, and it always makes me laugh of, you know, a, a paleolithic wolf saying, uh, basically one minute going, oh, that human looks like they're doing something interesting. Maybe I'll go by the fire. And then it's like... <laughs> Fast forward a few thousand years and you got the little pug in a jumper kind of thing, <laughs> like, you know. Um, you wonder who got the better deal in some ways. But Rebecca, um, I suppose one period of particular interest for this project uh, is the Viking Age. And do we know much about the relationship in particular between the Vikings and dogs? Um, do they appear much, say, in the historical sources or... Uh, how much of our evidence is based on archaeology and, and what we found? Um, yeah, so we actually know loads about Viking dogs. Um, but what we don't know about is what Viking Age dogs were like in Ireland. So I'm going to tell you what we know about um, dogs in Scandinavia and Iceland, um, because there's been a huge amount of research in the last couple of years, um, mostly on the textual sources. So the literary sources and um, so the Old Norse myths the sagas of the Icelanders, um, looking at how dogs appear in those texts, you know, how they're referred to. Um, and Harriet Evans, Evans Tang has done some work looking at um, how often dogs are referred to within some of the sagas. So, you know, if there's a dog barking in the background or if they've got red, red hair and um, or, you know, if they're referring to a physical attribute of the dog or much more commonly, they're talking about the relationship between the dog and the person. So she, she calls this, she terms this the idea of the gifted dog in the saga. So the dog is always someone special coming up across much more often than just being a, someone and being a, a figure in the background, a probably not very silent barking figure in the background. Um, so that's really interesting. And um, the other way... Uh, that we can approach the dog in Iceland and in Scandinavia is looking at the physical space, you know, the archaeology of the dog. Where does the dog found? Where did the dog live? Was it in the house? And here we're talking about farm dogs, you know, dogs who are outside. They're fulfilling hunting purposes, guard dog purposes. They're minding the herds of sheep. Um, so they're very functional working dogs um, as well. Um, but it's there's also been some really interesting work looking at how dogs are found um, found in death in two ways. 
Um, so literally dogs, there's a real association between dogs and burials in some cemeteries in Sweden. And there's a cemetery called Valsgard. Um, and there was a study there uh, and identified dog bones in 12 graves um, from Vendel. So just before the Viking Age and Viking Age graves. But between these 12 graves, there was a minimum number of 20 different dogs. So you're having people being buried with with all their pets wow. or their their functional dogs. So it's the association between life and death. Um, and kind of leading on from that, then there's been some other work talking about the kind of the role that dogs play in helping to navigate death, um, that the dog is buried in the furnished Viking grave as the companion for the, the dead person to come back to. Mm-hmm. And part of their worldly goods, you know, um, being furnished with all the things that they need for a good afterlife. And the dog is a part and parcel of that package. Um, but then there's also an association between dogs and bad things. So dogs yeah. of destruction, wolves, wolves attacking mm-hmm. people um, or um take your hand of the Baskervilles sort of story you know yeah. how does dog go um, from being man's best friend to being man's worst nightmare yes um, and Fenrir a... of course as well being yeah, such a big, yeah. literally a big figure yeah. <laughs> in mythology that that's so interesting Rebecca and you can kind of see that paralleled in other forms of archaeology in other periods as well isn't it at the hill of Tara wasn't there a, a child buried uh, with the dog in in was it Rathnari um uh, might be getting that mixed up with another large ceremonial enclosure of a, a similar <laughs> period in Ireland, but I'm pretty sure it's Rathenry. Um yeah. and then even if you look at the kind of the later medieval graves where you have those um uh, kind of night effigies and they always have their feet resting on a dog. On the dog at the end. You yeah. know, so there is this real association, isn't there? And you know, when you're looking at the the cemetery that you mentioned in in Sweden, mm-hmm. uh are they buried with any other animals or is it very much dogs and people? Um, there's lots of different animals turn up, okay. but um, there is an association between dogs and horses. And that's something that we're going to, okay. that we're going to look at as well here. Very um, good. Our, our problem with looking at our Viking Dublin dogs is of course, all our Viking age burials, we have the highest concentration of Viking age furnished burials. You know, your big warriors with your mm-hmm. swords and spears and shields in mm-hmm. the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, they were virtually all antiquarian finds and antiquarian excavations, and they haven't kept the bones. They just kept the shiny swords and the pretty brooches, yeah, and silver coins. And um, yeah. so we're we're we have a, a different perspective. We're looking at dogs in life. No, it is such a shame, isn't it? I mean, especially around kind of Kilmainham and Island Bridge, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, it was all nineteenth-century incredible yeah. discoveries, and it's one of those that you you just you kind of wince when you think about the archaeology yeah, the opportunities yeah. that, that were lost. But uh, Ruth, how did this particular project come about? And and what are the main aims? What are you, what is it that you're looking to, to, what story is it that you're looking to tell? Well, it came about, I was actually, um, I'm a commercial zoo archaeologist as well as a research scientist part-time, but I was, uh, got, got the uh, Chancery Lane uh, animal bone assemblage from Al- Alan Hayden 
and uh, to to do the zoo archaeological archaeological report on. And uh, there's a lot that's at various Viking levels as well as as well as medieval. Um, but there was a lot of dog bones, remains, partial skeletons, and whole nearly whole skeletons found at various layers, including the Viking layers, and a bit later. Um, and and one evening anyway, I was looking at you know the various dogs bones from a particular context. And uh, there was one particularly large uh, dog, large sized dog, uh, partial remains. And um, I took a picture of uh, a lower jaw or the mandible of the dog and mm -hmm. you know, put it in my hand, took a picture and just posted it on Twitter. And it got a lot of attention and a few different researchers um, from across the water in, in England and out in, as far as Canada and some Irish ones as well reached out and um, essentially after a lot of discussions I've created a team of different researchers both commercial and academic so it's a good blend of both worlds uh, but it's driven by the commercial end of uh, end of archaeology um, and we, we, we just formed a team so it's a real grassroots type uh, research project and people are just genuinely interested to, to know more and part of what we want to know is, you know, are these actually pure dogs or are they interbred with wolves? Because you know, you never know with the Vikings in mm -hmm. Scandinavia, what they're up to. And, um, you know, did they bring them in with themselves from their mm -hmm. travels into Ireland? Um, or are they actually from within Ireland in terms of hinterland versus urban? Are there any differences? Um, we, we know there's different kind of body sizes, small, medium and large. Um, some of the, the English ones are quite large, but the, the Dublin site is actually even larger with Chancery Lane dogs. Mm. Um, and then we have to, you know, well, you know, what kind of diet did they have? Were they being fed well? And, you know, is it meat or is it marine environments being Dublin quite close to, you know, on the Liffey there and the influence from the marine coast um, where they given given scraps and so on and so forth. Or, you know, what, you know, again, the different functions, different roles in in the, in the societies and relationships with um, horses in terms of hunting. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, you know, you know, what kind of stature, but also the relationship we get into, I suppose, deep time relationships in terms of genetic relationships within Ireland, dogs within Ireland, but then comparing it to um, certain select sites over in England as well. So we've a couple of different archaeological sites, um, York being one of them. We've a collaboration with the York Ar Archaeological Trust over there. Um, and, you know, is there any differences then within those, between those populations through time, or are they similar through time? So our project mm -hmm. kind of covers loosely around about 700 AD to 1400 AD, but we do include okay. some outliers uh, as well um, in terms of younger dogs. Um, or more older dogs in in terms of time as well, just as I suppose an outlier to see if there's any relationships through time within Ireland or within you know between Ireland and and Britain or within Britain as well. So, uh, is there a better combination than dogs and archaeology? I can see why oh. it got so many <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. many people interested. It's absolutely <laughs> fascinating already, and like it, it is interesting as well. Uh, uh, like looking at the the different blend of sources that you're consulting and Rebecca maybe you could expand on on that a little I mean 
is a lot of it going to be kind of uh, archaeologically focused, or do we have good historical sources that mention dogs here in Ireland as well? Uh, yeah. We do. We have both. Um, and that's what we're so lucky with in the Viking Age is that we have wonderful archaeology and in Ireland. And of course, I'm going to say this because I'm biased, but our Irish Viking Age archaeology is superb. Um, but I am biased. Um, <laughs> but uh, we also have historical sources and we have literary sources and we have all sorts of references that we have to go to. And we have to kind of we, as Viking scholars, we do have to cross check and cross-reference our archaeology and our history and our history and our literary references because all together they all come together to make such a much richer picture mm. um, than any on their own but having said that this is an archaeology project and it's we're really looking forward to the, the kind of the crossover between the the theoretical archaeology the the data and the potential that these new scientific methods can bring to us um but to go back to the history for a second, um, when I was reading some of the early Irish laws yesterday, um, I came across a reference to uh, something that I'm sure many of the dog owners here will relate to. Um, and it's the problem of fouling on the street. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> because, of course, there's all sorts of different types of roads in early medieval Ireland and they graduate from your basic cow track that the cows just walk along going from field to field all the way up to your big paved highways that the king's charioteers can carry can carry messages along. Mm. And if your dog fouls the main street, um, then you have to clean it up. Okay. Um, or if your dog fouls your neighbor's productive land, okay, if your dog goes and poos next door in their crop field of crops, you're supposed to not just remove the poop, but you're also supposed to replace the soil with good quality soil. Um, even going so far as to say that even if the bit of soil just smells a little, you have to replace that <laughs> bit too. That's brilliant. Bring so these yeah. laws back. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's loads to work with there. But really, we are we're what we're really interested in is taking the the new scientific methods and applying it to the this set of bones, and mm. um, to see what that can tell us. I, I, that's it. I, I... Ruth, perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit about some of these techniques and methods. Um, what sort of techniques are you looking to uh, apply? Um, well, we have the you know the standard zoo zoo archaeological techniques where mm -hmm. we examine the bones, we measure them, um, we look for any diseases or fra healed fractures or anything like that, um, anything that the the, the old, the actual bones can tell us an estimation of age as well by looking at the fused sutures on the long bones and um, degree of wear on the teeth any disease in the teeth at all so the the bone measurements themselves will give us we'll be able to um we, we i'm compiling the database as at the moment from between the irish sites and the english sites and um basically doing some statistical shape and size analysis so looking at size differences um, between different sites and different, you know, urban and hinterland sites, and the Irish versus the versus the British sites, and so on, and then we'll cross that over into the genomics and the genetic analysis. Will give us the the sex of each dog, so male or female, which will be interesting in terms of were they potentially breeding. There are puppies on Chancery Lane, puppy bones, so they were definitely females there, um, and breeding away, but. Then with the deep genomics, then we look at phylogenetic history. So it's the network of history of um, 
relationships between different populations, both within Ireland, within Britain, and then crossing and comparing. And then there's um, we work with Pontius Scotland in the Francis Crick Institute in London, and um, they have uh, genomics of wolves and dogs going back to 100,000 years ago. So oh, okay. we have a huge database to compare ours to. We'll also be able to detect if there's any interbreeding between wolves and dogs, or if there's any pure wolves you know, masquerading as large dogs, for example, um, in, in the populations. We also then for dietary analysis, we're looking at stable isotopes. So there's a very different, so basically you are what you eat. So, mm -hmm. you know, these um, molecules form in the bones and teeth and you, you can tell whether it's a marine diet or uh, a terrestrial uh, meat diet. So you have very different signatures associated with those in the stable isotopes. And then, of course, we have all, all importantly, radiocarbon dating. Without radiocarbon dating, we can't hang any of that data on any time period. Mm -hmm. So the, the dating is very important. And we're working and collaborating with um, uh, 14 Crano up in Queen's University, Belfast, with, with that dating, which is great. They're excellent. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, then we've all the historical and the the um the written and so on so that's you know i'll pass you over to rebecca for that one <laughs> yeah and that's uh, it's such a different range of skills coming into the project which i think it makes it really really exciting mm. and it it's um I, I suppose part of this as well uh, you know looking at both the historical evidence uh rebecca and and, and maybe going back to yourself ruth in, in terms of some of the uh, evidence that you might have already seen even outside of this project you know do you find is it possible to to understand anything you, you know apart from as you say about things like the diets is there much to look at things about how dogs were kind of treated like my own dog uh or archaeologist as i call her peg um <laughs> She's on this really elaborate, fancy diet because she's got a very sensitive stomach. Now, some people claim she's putting it on and she just wants the expensive, expensive food. But, you know, the vet says she needs it. Um, can we see anything like veterinary care? Is there anything uh, perhaps in the early Irish laws that point towards the right treatment of animals? Or is there anything that we can see from... Um, you know, healed bones and things like that in, in, in terms of the physical evidence. So it may go to yourself first, Rebecca. Do you know of anything in, in kind of the laws that points towards um, a duty of care, let's say, to your own animals? Or is it basically that's your property, you can do what you like? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to have to come back to you on that of duty of care to the animals. Um, mm. But what I did find is there's lots of different references to dog fighting. Um, okay. And, of course, so... Um, and attacks by dogs on different on uh, either on people or on property or on animals. So there's very there's differing severity of punishment depending on if the dog, say if the dog attacks a person, if they draw blood or if they tear clothing or if they don't. Mm. Um, and you know dogs are supposed to be kept leashed or if it's a dog that's known to have attacked someone, they are supposed to be muzzled. Um, so there are various different um different um prohibitions a, and yeah. you know requirements for having a dog for owning a dog um okay. and um but 
in terms of how if there's any references to medical care of dogs, you know, I, I genuinely don't know. But that mm. is something that we'd see in the well, if it's a bone injury, that's something that you would pick up in the bones, wouldn't you, Ruth? Yeah, like um, I, I several instances from different different uh, sites actually in Dublin, mm-hmm. more so than anywhere else. Um, there's some of the dogs. They're they're interesting. Um, there's healed skull fractures on on large enough dogs, and um, so much so that they would have suffered probably a hard enough knock and mm-hmm. a bang of something hard. To fracture the skull and there's a depression going in but the um the skull has healed around the site so um there's some you know degree of care like the dog would have been injured severely enough probably you know wobbly and whatever else but a uh, degree of care by by its owner at the time and nursed it back to life and for the 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 bone to heal then you know it would have been continually fed and looked after um, same goes for a broken humerus, which is the foreleg, upper foreleg bone. Um, very bad fracture, but it's actually well healed as well um, in its life. So again, the dog would have had wouldn't have been able to walk properly. Um, if it can't fend for itself on the streets of Dublin, it, it would likely get attacked by other dogs because they would see it as being weak, or even other humans might kick it to one side. So the dog was looked after, uh, yeah. well fed, etc. And these are, you know, large enough dogs, so you could uh, postulate that maybe they were guard dogs and therefore of use. And, uh, you know, looking after your guard dog for future use in, the, you know, guarding the property or the goods or whatever else. So, so yeah, so there is um, the zoo archaeological evidence does pick up on those kind of instances, um, which is useful. It gives you another layer of um, evidence of the special relationship between humans and dogs in viking and medieval times that's very interesting and you know one of the roles that i i kind of wonder about and it's probably uh a result of watching too much game of thrones when it was on is that of course you got your guard dogs as you say which are incredibly valuable as you know throughout history were they ever used as far as we know either by the vikings or an island in general during like battle kind of thing that they were brought into the fight sort of thing and let loose or you know that because if you're hearing of large dogs with head injuries and things it makes you think they were in some kind of a it wasn't just like a a dog fight between two dogs to do that no no that this type of injury it's it's like hitting somebody with a baseball bat yeah yeah, you know you, you see similar similar hard knocks on human skulls um mm. which they tend not to survive so yeah. it's it is interesting yeah. but yeah i'm sure you know whether it's you know we turn them guard, guard dogs but um as you say they could be brought in you know the, the relationship between human horse and dog in a hunt situation or mm-hmm. a battle situation um is a possibility as well yeah very interesting very interesting. I keep thinking when we thinking of the when you mentioned the the hunting and with the horses, I keep thinking of that fabulous mural that you can just about see on Holy Cross Abbey. I think it's about fourteenth or fifteenth century. It might just be within your time period. Have you seen it? It's um painted yeah. of the the dog and the huntsman, and the huntsman's blowing the horn, and he's got a dog on a leash. I'll send you on a picture. It's yeah, lovely. send a picture. It's, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll <do> that. <laughs> um, so. Looking at uh, the project, Rebecca, uh, you know, outreach, it, it's like there's lots of archaeological projects that uh, 
that we could talk about. But in, as I said earlier, you know, this combination of dogs, archaeology, Vikings, and all of that kind of thing, you can really see why it captured people's imaginations, and especially when Ruth was was putting up those fabulous pictures. Uh, so outreach is a really important part of the project. And um, I really love that you're already engaging with schools. Could you tell us a little bit more about your kind of your plans for outreach as the project develops? Yeah. Um, so it's outreach is, and telling people what we've found is an absolutely crucial part of our archaeology, of what we do, um, as you know well yourself, Neil. <laughs> um, it's that, you know, this story of where we came from, how we got here, it belongs to everybody here and everyone has deserves to know what it is. Um, so we've built this in, Ruth has built this in really strongly right from the start, the idea of the public outreach and telling people um, about what we're finding. Um, so this is what we're talking about here is the idea of the kennel pack. So this is a special tier of kind of supporters um, for us, for our project. And the kennel pack is a little, little slot for uh, secondary schools to sign up as kind of as partners on the project mm -hmm. with us. Um, and we have five slots for secondary schools and they're going to sign up with us and they get to name their dog. They get a dog for each school. They get to name it and they're going to sponsor the radio carbon date, the cost of one radio carbon date for that dog. And in return, we're going to go and we're going to give them um, classroom visits, teaching materials um, and tell them about what we found, about what we've done, why we've done it, what we found and why it's important. And it's not just important in terms of telling the story of the archaeology, but it's also really important because we're demonstrating the power of the collaboration between the humanities, between you know mm. typical archaeology, um, traditional archaeology, and the power of the scientific analysis of our of the bones that we've literally picked up out of the ground, um, and showing how sciences and humanities come together and how we can take this data and tell a new story, um, and tell. Uh, tell this story of dogs and make it relevant and exciting and inspiring, we hope, for these teenagers and um, the power of what they can do in I, their I, future. Yeah, I, I just think that's a brilliant idea. And again, you know, it's 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 dogs being the gateway in a way. We all we all know dogs well. <laughs> Hello, Ruth. Sorry. Can I just jump in and add to that a bit of more? Course. Please do. Um so so yes, we have five uh kennel pack. Uh, slots, three of which are filled at the moment by right. um, St. Raphael's uh, Secondary School in Salorgan, County Dublin. Um, then there's Cork Educate Together Secondary School then in Cork City, and then Loretto Abbey Dawkey in County Dublin, the secondary girls' school. And uh, what we intend to not only do is engage online with them, but also, as Rebecca said, um, do some planned visits at some point and also get members of the team at different stages. We'll organize Zoom so that the students can actually ask questions and so on. So um, on the website, there's a dedicated, we have a dedicated website. Um, each school gets a password protected page for them to, to visit for there. So they get to follow once I pick, you know, find the bones in the archaeological assemblage, I'll take photographs. I'll show them the measurements. We'll, we'll show the measurements and so on, how it fits in. So they get to follow their dog that they adopt from a, a particular site um, all the way from start to end. 
So it shows them that research isn't this big, daunting, I don't know, scary thing. Research is simply asking a question. Yes. And to get that across to, you know, first year and secondary, uh, second, second year secondary school students, I think is really important in terms of getting uh, the, these uh, boys and girls interested in following science and humanities, archaeology, and combining the two together, that it's not just, um, you know, bones in the ground and suddenly magically we find out all this information. They get to see all the steps and each of the labs will actually then pro provide additional, um, I suppose, backup knowledge. At, when the bone gets to them, they'll be able to then uh, follow on what's going on at each stage. So I think that's an important um level of engagement that we hope to accomplish and it's actually ongoing at the moment so St Raphael's school in Salorgan have named their dog from Chancery Lane which is the largest dog that I found oh, nice. um, Espini which of course means sausages in Irish so, <laughs> uh, so they're, they're always asking what, what's the latest update and so on so, so they're very keen very keen students Ah, oh, that that that's brilliant. It's speedy. What a great name. Um, but let's say, I mean, as I say, dogs. That you know, everybody knows dogs. Like it's such a good vehicle in a way to to get people into this research. And one of the things that certainly I've tried to do over the the life of this podcast, if you like, um, and and that I love hearing about, in, particularly with this project at schools, is that archaeology is a very broad church. And you can come into it and you could be really interested in the historical aspect of archaeology, or you could be really interested in the excavation part of it. And then there's all of these raft of scientific methods. And so it, it could, and, and all the way to art as well with reconstruction illustrations and this kind of thing. It, it draws on so many different interests and skill sets. And it's all about being curious and asking good mm -hmm. questions, as you say, about the past. And I think this project by by keeping it with the dogs and, and the horses that people already have as part of their life and they can imagine what you know life was like for a dog sometimes easier than you can imagine what life was like for a person in mm. the Viking age it, it's that little bit more tangible I, I just think it's got so much potential and it's wonderful to hear that it's already kind of well constructed as part of the project that there's this outreach element and um Apart from your outreach with the schools, how can the general public get involved or, or offer support, uh, which I would recommend that they do, because this is fabulous. Um, well, actually, ex exciting times. We're, we're running a Kickstarter in the month of June. Fantastic. And this is mainly to raise funds to cover the costs of the radiocarbon dating with uh, that, that chrono in Belfast, Queen's University of Belfast is doing for us. The, the costs of the stable isotopes and the ancient DNA are being co covered already by the individual labs out of their interest and in the project, which is great. The zoo archaeologists have provided all their measurement data. Um, and then, you know, it's just a matter of picking up those bones, either from the commercial companies or I have, you know, the assemblages in-house and so on. So it's the main area we we need support on is actually cover cover the radiocarbon dating. So with the Kickstarter, we'll have several different levels and different targets because with Kickstarter, you get all of it or you get nothing. Mm. Uh, 
So there'll be kind of a, a, a lagged phase where, you know, five to 10 radiocarbon dates will come up first. And then once we reach that goal, the next five or 10 or whatever, um, because we need to get some rather than nothing out of yes. the Kickstarter. Yeah. So we've been working with um Well, I've been working with John Flynn, who is a superb artist from McCroom mm. in County Cork. Um, his, his technique is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and a skill set but um i've been working with him on a different project since october 2021 so when this project came about i thought it would be a great uh, way to engage the science and the art together fuse it together to see what we could come up with so we've myself and john have designed and uh, drawn a uh, special print limited edition print for use in this kickstarter and the project which will go on uh children and adults hoodies and t-shirts and tote bags and key rings and enamel pins and then the print itself at a3 and a2 sizes will be uh offered as, as rewards so you know they exchange the money for the reward mm-hmm. um and john has also drawn a phrase once off you know it's a painting a special painting uh, involving wolves and dogs and so on the to, to blend in with the project so we would hope that um the the public can support us in that sense uh and give financially support so by crowdfunding you know if everybody does a little bit we can attain so much more and without the radiocarbon dating the radiocarbon dating is like the spine through the person yes everything hangs off it and it's crucial to our understanding so that's the same with archaeology unless you have dating you can't place these things in time and Mm -hmm. therefore you can't compare through time either and through places so it's it's important that we we uh we attain our our radiocarbon carbon dating now so far we have gotten some sponsorship um which which is great we we've gotten um 10 dates from dublin city council sponsored for dublin city dogs in in ireland um we've various other companies as well giving you know sponsoring a radiocarbon date and so on so it's it's all building up, but we we need that bit more to to get us across the line. So, no, uh, of course, and and we'll be sponsoring one as well. Um, nice one, thank you. <laughs> and Rebecca, yes, um, I just wanted to add, um, so we have we're approaching close to forty different dogs now. Is it Ruth, um, in our sample size? Um, it's around about <laughs> that. I haven't done the final account yet. Yeah. It might be 50, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so we have, the 50 we have lots of dogs. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so any help from the public who would contribute to our campaign would be really, really useful, really helpful, really valuable, um, because it is, you know, the radiocarbon dates are crucial. And the kind of the premise behind the whole project has been that it's collaborative that there's all these different people coming together and this is the way that the public can come together and they can get their own little bit of being part of this exciting research project um, and saying that they they help make the story happen absolutely no no, that's it i mean it's it's not often i think that you see a, a project that has this amount of kind of different collaborative elements to it and and the fact that um it you know the the information is going to be available for people who who take part i think it's fabulous and and if anyone doesn't know john flynn the artist one of my favorite artists actually he did this amazing uh 
he'll get a big head because I know he listens to the show, but he's very good. And he, he deserves that big head. But he, he did a great <laughs> he did a great series of Sheila the Gigs. I don't know if you saw his illustrations. Oh, that. That. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Fantastic. His, his attention to detail, I think, is is fantastic. But it, it's even beyond just a, a replica of the object, if you like. It it's he puts real character into it too. So really excited to see what he creates for this. And I suppose looking forward, you know, in terms of the the Kickstarter, as you said, that's going to be running for the month of June. Is that it'll, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll run into it'll around about the early early June, like the first second of June thereabouts, mm-hmm. until kind of early mid July. I, okay. I think you get about thirty five days or so to 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 run it. Yeah. Um. So we would hope to, you know, we we'll have. Obviously, this this podcast will go out, and um, there's another podcast I'm involved in, and um, you know, other outreach to other um radio stations and so on will 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 form, and um, we've other activities, and obviously there's the blog posts or the bite sized treats on our website. So our website is www.vikingdublindogs.ie. Um, so yes. we'll we'll post any updates there. Um, we're also on Twitter at, at Viking Dublin Dog. Unfortunately, the the S didn't make it because it was too long and a name. You just have to pick your favourite dog. dog. More yeah. more dog. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like we're we're also yeah. open to commercial company um, mm-hmm. sponsorship as well for the radio carbon dating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll discuss various perks, special perks with them. You know, as well. Um, so yeah, it's very good. It's, it's, it is exciting. Um, it is. Uh, it's a it is a big project. There's lots of different elements. Um, but yeah. I think it's all going to come together really nicely, and we'll have a great story. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I think you know, as I said, as I said all the way through, I think the subject is so strong, and it's interesting too because I suppose typically, and, and Ruth, you would. You might say I'm totally wrong on this, but would I be right in thinking that historically, when people were looking at animal remains from archaeological sites, you know, going back a few decades, it would be quite a a functional thing, particularly focused around consumption and the use of the animal for like, uh, whether it's for eating or or Mm. production of. uh, So something like a dog might be sort of not ignored, but oh, it's a dog. They're not going to really yeah. be that. We'll we'll focus on the pigs. They're more interesting. Would that be the case? It, it it does. Unfortunately, dogs are on the menu as well at certain times. Oh no! Ireland. So, um, <laughs> I I certain medieval periods in Dublin. Yes, there's um cutbacks oh. on bone on on dog bones. So oh, I'm afraid they didn't escape the consumption era. Oh Lord! <laughs> something that I want to think about a little bit more, actually. Again, mm. it's something I came across in Fergus Kelly's book on um, early Irish farming yesterday. Mm. Um, is that the there are references to eating dogs, and um, but it's a response to famine and to food shortages. Okay. Um, yeah, and okay. if you think about medieval towns, mm-hmm. famine was a constant. Mm-hmm. constant threat food poverty food insecurity um a bad winters um or a bad summer's growth means poor food supplies for the winter mm-hmm. and that's bad on the farm right 
But mm. when you go into the town, you're at a remove. You're not producing your own food. One of the, the yeah. primary definitions of being urban and living in a town is that you're not really producing food. Mm. Um, you are reliant on a market. And when the market is poor, um, famine is the consequence, starvation. Um, yeah. So, I... yeah. So there's there's all sorts of things. No, that that's it. And it kind of, I remember when we were looking at the precisely excavated uh, an early medieval mill that's kind of eighth century there or thereabouts. I think there was a series of famines in the eighth century. And yeah. I do remember one reference. I can't remember the year, unfortunately, but it's uh, in this year, man ate man. Uh, so it showed how bad things got then that, yeah. you know, the dogs were probably already long gone at that stage, unfortunately. And, and, you know, that, yeah. Desperate people do desperate things. Um, that's a really bad note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. And it would be interesting as well to see if any of your Dublin dogs show mm. some of this evidence as well throughout the project. So to for people to keep up, the, there's going to be updates on vikingdublindogs.ie mm-hmm. or on social yeah. media at vikingdublindog. Exactly. Uh, at, at Twitter in particular, um, and then to keep an eye out in particular for the Kickstarter, and that's going to be running for the month of June, and yeah. any help whatsoever would be terrific, and you'd be Probably. playing the part yeah. in, in a really exciting, really collaborative, lovely bit of archaeological And it's not just Dublin dogs that we have. No, we have it's not just Yeah, We, yeah. we do have um, dogs from Cork and mm-hmm. uh, Roscommon, uh, actually, from Ranala in Roscommon, so ah uh, yes, the medieval yes. cemetery there. Yes, um, and then we have Drum Clay up in Fermanagh. It's it's it is outside of our uh, main period of time, but it's one of the outer layer, layers that we, we said we would use anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, up in Meath as well, we we've a few sites up in near Dunshaughlin. Trying to Rebecca, do you, I can't quite remember any, any temporary <laughs> yeah. dogs at all. <laughs> There's Wicklow as well. We've Wicklow There's as well. There's Wicklow dogs. Um, I had a list of dogs somewhere here, and I've I've lost it. Um, Wicklow Dublin. If, if there's any temporary ones, we'll definitely sponsor that one. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> we'll try and find one there. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But not from North Tip. We're very fussy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but and then we've, we've several sites over in England as well. We've York uh, City, and then West uh, West Toe. Stow, oh, West Stow, Ipswich. Uh, what was the third one? There's another one. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Brandon. Yes, I think. And yeah. Fishbourne. Fishbourne. Oh, yeah. Fishbourne. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, oh no! Look, this is such an interesting one. And do you think? Um, What's the finish line that you're going to put on this, or is it going to be like all, all <laughs> dogs? <laughs> yes, all, all dogs from future excavations are going to be. Uh, I, I think there's it, it's a bit of a rolling project in one yeah. sense because all the different analysis takes different times. Yeah, yeah. You can integrate them at different times with each other as well. So there will be you know smaller papers with some of the data, and then once we get more data. From the other analysis so the genomics the full genomics which is the deep dive into the genetic relationships that takes a minimum of three years oh wow okay, uh, okay. so it does so and that's we, once they get the samples that yeah that's once yeah, they get yeah, the samples yeah. so okay. it, it will go on the whole project will have a longer life into 
around about 2026, if not just a bit beyond that, uh, okay. maybe 2027 thereabouts. So okay, that but there'll be results coming reasonably. Oh, yeah. Like oh, yeah. you know, it'll all be kind of phased through. But I, yeah. as I say, you know, I think it's such an interesting subject. I think you've you've really captured. Certainly my imagination and hopefully a lot of other people's imaginations as well. I can't wait to see what gets discovered and I wish you all the best with it. And I hope everyone listening uh, takes part as well. But thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you this evening. Thank you. Likewise. Thank, thank you. you very much, Neil. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And I'd just like to thank Ruth and Rebecca again for all of their time and insights. What an exciting project. and cannot wait to find out where it leads us if you'd like to keep up with it you can do so at vikingdublindogs.ie and on the social media at vikingdublindog i'll be sharing links to that on our show notes on our website and i'll also be adding a link to the kickstarter as soon as that goes live which it should be in the fairly near future if you're listening to this at the start of june if you can do support it this is a great opportunity to help to support some fantastic and important research Amplify Archaeology podcast is sponsored by Tua. So if you're looking to go and explore a little bit more of Ireland's wonderful archaeology and heritage this summer, come and pay us a visit at tua.ie, T-U-A-T-H-A.ie, to find out how our articles, itinerary, courses and events can help you to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland. And as a listener to Amplify Archaeology podcast, there's a discount there for you as well. Simply enter the coupon code AMPLIFY for 20% off your first subscription. For now, I want to thank you again for listening. I hope you're enjoying the summer and take care. And we'll see you again soon on Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Mm-hmm.